this was a fascinating discussion on the science of nutrigenomics and genetics in relation to COVID-19. None of this should be taken as medical advice, so if you're making a change to your diet, lifestyle, supplementation, or medication, please seek the guidance of your medical physician. Hi, my name is Ben Atkinson and welcome to the Functional Health Podcast. I interview some of the leading voices in nutrition and lifestyle medicine, and I will share with you their stories, their expertise, and their advice, shedding light on the industry from each of their perspectives to help improve your health from today. This week, I'm delighted to share with you my conversation with Emma Bezik. Emma is a nutritional therapist and founder of LifeCode GX. And today we talk about nutrigenomics and genetics in relation to COVID-19. So without further ado, Emma, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ben. It's really nice to be back. Yes. Uh, a, a second visit. Yeah, I'm really, really pleased to have you on. And last time we spoke about how your genetics influence your nutrient intake and certain elements like that and how your genetics also predispose you to certain conditions and dysfunctions but it's great to have you on to talk about something which is quite prevalent in the media which is COVID-19. Yeah still yes who would have thought it but still and so I think that lends extra weight to why we should pay attention and why it's still something that is important to work on in terms of understanding nutrient and genetic impacts yeah absolutely and there's been a few things which have come out um in the media and I I really should have um paid more attention I think earlier on because there was data which was out um a while ago and this was like in August last year I want to say where they were having a look at and this is retrospectively looking at people with severe COVID and like blood typing which I thought was really strange and this is the first um kind of introduction if you will where I think it was type A and B and AB had worse outcomes than type O. Now, obviously, genetics, you know, aren't like um, your golden ticket to rip off your mask and go wild if you're you're type O and you've got less risk. But it was just quite interesting and obviously plays more of an interplay in your potential risk for severe outcomes than, than we previously thought it would. Yeah, it is really interesting as well because there are different genes and different studies identifying different weak points uh, in the context of acute versus long COVID. Yeah. Um, And it makes sense that they are different in, in many cases, but then there are also probably things in common to both as mm-hmm. well so they're not mutually exclusive are they you could have severe acute covid and then you can still be ill for for months afterwards or you could have a relatively light initial experience of covid but then it starts to hit and and you realize that things aren't right and people have reported months and months and months of chronic fatigue type symptoms even though they didn't think it was that bad to start with Mm um so i think there are things in common um but also things that are quite different in terms of whether they affect that acute kind of 
uh, experience or, or long term. What has been the most surprising finding that you've come across when you've researched this? I think one of the things that surprised us, so we've been working with various doctors um, who've been running long COVID clinics mm-hmm. and and done testing on, on clients who've really not been improving and would, you know, try and use genetic testing to find out if that can give any clues. One of the things that surprised us most was that the genes that were involved directly in particular essential nutrients didn't really stand out as being particularly different. Um, And I think one hypothesis around that is that COVID, the viral infection actually depletes nutrients later so much, almost regardless of where you started. So once it's got you, once once it's in and it's taken hold, um, it, it's so depleting of those nutrients. So your immune system is pushed into overdrive and it just just kind of uses up vitamins like vitamin D at a rate of knots. So even if you started off at an okay level, it's such a demanding situation that it will deplete you. Um, and for example, we looked at, a gene called MTHFR, which is infamous, and I think we might have discussed that last time. Yes. Um, so yeah, MTHFR is the kind of big buddy of nutrigenomics. Everyone, everyone pillars it and gets gets concerned about MTHFR, which, as a reminder to everyone, that enables folate to become active, biologically active. So it's vitamin B nine uh, folate. Um, what we were perhaps anticipating was that SNPs on that gene would be more prevalent in long COVID people, but actually it was the opposite. Um, and that probably, to go back to your original question, that probably was the most surprising result. Um, I have often thought that if a SNP is really common, mm-hmm. Uh, then there must be a reason for that and there must be some kind of advantage to having a SNP. Um, And actually we saw that the prevalence of the MTHFR variant was lower in long COVID people. So it's as if that might actually be advantageous in some way. That's hugely fascinating. Have you got any idea why it would be advantageous? Yeah, so we looked at other research um, that had been done and there, there is information to suggest that it might be connected with viral hijacking. So viruses need to replicate um, and they hijack. And this is the case with Epstein-Barr virus, for example, EBV. Mm-hmm. They are known to hijack the host machinery so our biochemistry in order to replicate um and so if that was the case with the folate cycle whose function one of the functions of the folate cycle is to support dna synthesis so if if that folate cycle is better i.e it has a better mthfr profile 
um, then that could mean that it's also better for viral replication. Um, so that's a completely independent piece of research to what we did, but it, it fits, the hypothesis fits both scenarios. So I thought that was really, really interesting. Um, and there is also, I mean, there's mountains of research out there now about COVID, isn't there? Um, there are also the, the, the connections between EBV and COVID and um, particularly long COVID. So suggestions that long COVID somehow allows for uh, EBV to uh, resurge and become active again. Um, and that is what is causing some symptoms of long COVID. So I think, wow. yeah, it is fascinating. The virus for, for people that aren't familiar is the, is the virus which is associated with chronic fatigue syndrome most of the time right so having that yeah. to become active again would would make sense and make sense why there's so many similarities with long covid and chronic fatigue syndrome or post viral yeah. fatigue syndrome from yeah from that um yeah wow i did not know it became, there was association or indication that it became active again that's fascinating yeah that's that's you know one avenue and there are there's a growing uh, amount of research about that so it is really really fascinating and they both use this this folate cycle in terms of dna replication to replicate mm. themselves um so that's also really fascinating and Does i that mean sorry please continue i was just gonna say you know when people look at mthfr and the snips on there sometimes they might feel complacent that they haven't got a variance and that they don't need to pay any attention to their folate and b vitamin status mm -hmm. and this indicates that you know actually don't be don't don't just look at your genetics in a one-dimensional way and make a simplistic assumption um and that goes back to at the beginning we talked about nutrient depletion mm -hmm. so however good your genes are to some extent once it's in and once it's taken hold it's going to deplete and almost it's like stealing those nutrients for its own gain so so in a strange way if you've got the snip from thfr or you even if you don't um that slows down that cycle I guess supplementing things like methylfolate and B12 would be a hindrance. Wow. And um, <laughs> that's such a, yeah, no. And that's a really like clear follow through. It makes sense. But um, we know from things like uh, cancer treatment, so chemotherapy treatment, mm -hmm. which blocks the folate cycle because it's all about cell division. So it's a similar similar reason so in some chemotherapy blocks that cell division because it's trying to block the 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 growth of of tumors um but when people are treated in that way they are actually given folate alternatively to the chemo because you need folate for for the host function and you don't want to disadvantage the host function and compromise lots of other things too much mm -hmm. in trying to destroy the invader or the you know whatever the problem is um so i don't know if it's the right 
ways to use the phrase, but don't throw the baby out with the bathwater type scenario. Yeah. Um, so actually we probably would say um, do supplement, do replenish um, because you want your own immune system to have that have that resource to be resilient and kind of beat the baddie mm-hmm. um, in that way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, It'll be interesting as this research develops as well to see what comes out of that. Um, when you spoke about vitamin D and vitamin D kind of uh, replenishment and also depletion, see, this is really interesting because you've got an association in the literature now and you can look this up on vdmeta.com. It's a meta-analysis of, are you familiar with the website? I've heard of that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so they, they've done several um, different meta-analysis. It's like a continual meta-analysis of the, the data that's available for vitamin D and other um, supplements and pharmaceuticals but this group basically um i found that there's an association with reduced um sorry an increased severity for people with low vitamin d levels and supplementation um increases uh survivability and reduces the severity super super interesting however um it was thought that just increasing the vitamin D would actually just bolster the immune system um, not that it was being depleted in the first place. So what's really interesting is if, I guess this is a hypothesis currently, if vitamin D is being depleted, you could have a normal vitamin D status and it go low whilst you're suffering with COVID-19 and then therefore you get severe outcomes because of that lower immunity yeah. driven by low vitamin D. Yeah, hopefully yeah. I've articulated that correct <laughs> correctly. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I agree with that. And we know that um, the immune response and the inflammatory response actually stimulates vitamin D to be converted to its active form. Mm-hmm. So we might have a store of vitamin D, then we become infected, and that stimulates this conversion to the active form of vitamin D because we need it as part of our immune response, um, et cetera. So it can be really, really quickly depleted. Obviously, if you were low to start with, then you're in a, a, a worse situation. But I guess the problem with the research is people aren't generally tested before because mm. we don't know they're going to get COVID before. And so there isn't a kind of before and after comparison. Um, but there can be testing after people have been exposed to COVID or experienced long COVID. Um, and we don't expect that to, to be low um, because it's been used up so quickly. Um, and then there are, there are all kinds of working backwards scenarios where you could say, well, why would someone be low in vitamin D? Um, what's their cholesterol situation? Are they on statins, controversially, which could compromise the cholesterol availability to make the vitamin D form? No. Um, and I read something really recently about that and a connection between statins and um, COVID. Right. Okay. Um, and for that data, I will link to it in the show notes. Interestingly, with vitamin D, like I remember reading about this last year and there was the SHADE trial or SHADE study, however you want to refer to it. 
and it was it was in India, and it was a sixty thousand IU vitamin D intervention for people with COVID. So early intervention, uh, 60,000 IU given every single day for five days, dramatically reduced the severity and risk of dying. Um, super, super fascinating, but that is a really high dose by I think anyone's, uh, um, I guess, observation or calculations because the recommended dosage, I think maximum upper daily intake is 4,000 IU in the UK. Well, that's what's recommended. Um, so it seems like a therapeutic dose is much higher than that. Yeah. I mean, that's the, that's the kind of government guideline, isn't it? Um, although it was initially reported at 400, I think that's now been adjusted with the extra zero, corrected (laughs) with the extra zero. Yeah. Um, but you know, I agree. Is that a therapeutic dose or is that just a maintenance dose? Mm. Um, and I think it's, you know, play safe. It's a, it's a maintenance dose. But if you're in a situation where you're you're kind of using up and depleting your vitamin D really quickly, um, then it makes sense to have a therapeutic dose. Um, and I think in the UK, they will even, um, if people are tested uh, by a GP and they are low, it's possible to be prescribed vitamin D injections that are 50,000 international units for several weeks. Um, Or Um, a therapeutic dose might be 10,000 a day. mm -hmm. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I'm not sure if they're injections or like a tablet or capsule form. Um, Okay. But yeah, absolutely right. They do do high dose. Do do. (laughs) Yes, they use high doses to correct a deficiency. Um, so that's a really good point as well. And I guess you could argue that a lot of these trials using high doses may just be doing that and therefore seeing these great outcomes anyway. Yeah. Yeah. But it just make, it makes so much sense when you think about vitamin D's role in, in the immune response and the inflammatory response and balancing it balances like the, the angiotensin system. So people talk about ACE genes. Um, There are ACE receptor genes that are involved in the virus accessing the cells. Yeah, ACE2, angiotensin-converting enzyme 2, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And and those related enzymes, the related system is connected with things like blood pressure. Um, And, you know, one of the, the, the problems with, covid is is this whole kind of blood system i guess and uh, uh blood pressure oxygenation and and all related to that vitamin d is a really really big regulator of that angiotensin system so it stops things over revving and getting really really out of control almost like think of it as a, a it is an acute situation it's where everything's just overshot and gone into panic stations and vitamin d is a regulator of that system um it's got balancing kind of effects in terms of just just kind of calming it down so it's still working but it's stopping it becoming over overactive and dangerously so um 
as well. But yeah, it gets used up in the process really quickly. Mm, so that makes perfect sense because it, another thing which I'm interested in is like we measure. Um, I'm going to butcher the name now. Is it calciferol? How do you say it? Yeah, MD? yeah, calcifer. Cal, there's calcitriol. Oh yeah. Uh, they're all cold. Yeah, don't ask me. I'm, <laughs> okay, you're going to have to cut that. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll cut it. But like vitamin D3, I mean, it's annoying because I only I read this yesterday. But like vitamin D3 yeah. gets converted to an active form in the human body, right? Yeah. So we measure vitamin D3 in the blood. Yeah. Um, but it's not actually the active form of vitamin D. And I'm wondering, I mean, I don't know this, but if there is any indication that people that have SNPs which prevent or maybe inhibit the conversion to the active form, having worse outcomes from COVID. Um, I'm not sure that's been looked into, but it'd be fascinating nonetheless. It would be fascinating. I don't, I don't know is the short answer to that. So we look at, we look at genes that uh, transport vitamin D. Mm -hmm. So there's a, a, a globulin um, which binds vitamin D and carries it from the skin to the kidneys to the places where it needs to be to do its its jobs and to function and some people have got variances on that gene that mean that carrying process isn't as efficient and they would naturally lose vitamin d along the way um so the status would likely be affected by that um but it's quite complicated uh, as well because there is this concept well, it's not just a concept, but the, the principle of free vitamin D, so the vitamin D that is available uh, versus the stored, if you will, vitamin mm -hmm. D, and that there's the process of activating it, but also the process of it being freely available to do its job. Um, and it, it's there are so many variables. It's, it's quite difficult to pin down a single gene and it can be more useful to look at the cumulative effect of several genes involved in the vitamin D life cycle and system, if you will. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. That makes perfect sense. That is, is still an emerging area. I, I, it's perplexing how um, we don't have interventional data, like government-funded interventional data. Um, or even yeah. mandates that people have vitamin D. I was listening to a guy, which I'm more than happily linked to, Dr. John Campbell, who's got a YouTube mm -hmm. channel, which is ever growing. I think I started watching him when he was at like 500,000 subscribers. He's now at like 1.3 million. Um, wow. So he's grown exponentially over the past few months um, or this year. And... Um, he was talking about vitamin D status and how vitamin D is linked to not only better outcomes from COVID, but also potentially mechanistically better immunization from vaccines. So, I mean, this is still not completely proven by anyone's standards, but it warrants further exploration. And there's no incentive for pharmaceutical companies to do this because they won't make money. So it has to be government driven. Um there should be a campaign out there to, to, to make this happen for sure. So if anyone's listening and wants to start one, I will support you on it. <laughs> I think I agree. And it's so, there's, it's cheap 
to 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 administer and use absolutely um, yeah pennies yeah and vitamin d has got so many functions as well that imagine okay it's impaired either it was impaired in the first place or it's impacted and depleted by being infected covid or or whatever you're fighting but the consequence of not replenishing that is is huge in terms of long-term health like bone strength for example um and also things like mood so you know vitamin d helps you make serotonin that makes you feel positive and that you can cope with life and all those things um and if people just are walking around having no idea that they're depleted um and probably you know we know that one of the effects of long covid there are big effects on on mood um Mm. and uh the the stress systems and things like that, the HP axis um, as well. Once you get into a kind of negative cycle and you're feeling quite low and and quite flat, you also feel quite disempowered, I think. Um, It's almost like the times when you need that extra help, you feel least able to to do those things and and help yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, So really fundamental things and I think when we talk about nutrigenomics we would say everybody would benefit from a nutrigenomic test that looks at essential nutrients and can identify if that individual needs to always have a little bit more of whether it's vitamin d vitamin c some of the b vitamins they are the foundation stones of so many functions. They're essential and they're called that for a reason. Yeah. Um, you know, and if you can just make sure that they aren't letting the side down, then you've got a really solid baseline for your health, a solid foundation. Yeah, I like that, making sure they're not letting the side down. Yeah, just a, like a chink in your armor, right? Like a... Yeah. Yeah. You need to make sure that you've got a strong foundation for sure. Um, and I guess like nutrigenomics is one way of doing that, right? Yeah, absolutely. Because you wouldn't necessarily have thought about it. You wouldn't know, you know, why would you think about it if you're not actually ill? And, you know, this crops up in a lot of health conversations. People aren't aware that they could feel better than they feel at that moment necessarily they think that's normal Mm -hmm. um you just get used to what is normal for you um and you only notice when it gets worse and you're actually conscious that you feel ill but then as soon as you feel better again sometimes you've just slipped into that and you're not even conscious of the the positive shift um but we could all be or most people could be and probably are existing at a, a suboptimal level of health um and if they knew about these chinks in the armor and they could just pop them up a bit better they could get a uplift really quite easily 
Yeah, I completely agree. Like, it's funny because as soon as you said that, I was like, there's a couple of things which I implement now, which I wish I knew when I was younger. Like, I remember when I was like weightlifting so much, having like very high carb diet, low fat, high protein, and just constantly being hungry and having these energy crashes. And I was just like, now I just always have a fat source with my carbs and it's like slows things down, slows things right down. And the same, like I, yeah. I, I function basically on a lower carbohydrate diet most of the time, but just small things like magnesium. We spoke about this before game changer for me. Right. And yeah. it's those like small tweaks, which can have a massive effect on your health. And it really yeah. isn't, isn't hard to do most of the time, but those two things very easy for me to implement. Yeah. Yeah, I think for me, fats, good fats are the big, big game changer thing. And, you know, I grew up in an era where it was fat is bad. Have some half fat cheese, have, you know, low fat, no fat. And that still exists, doesn't it? So there are still loads and loads of products that get, you know, it, they're, they're, their selling point is no fat, zero fat. Mm -hmm. And we know that most of the time that's, just replaced by sugar which is worse <laughs> much worse you've replaced good stuff with bad stuff yeah um so yeah and yeah fats good fats it's like oiling lubricating the body from the inside and you know that's one aspect of it and energy good energy is is another cellular brain function as well like yeah yeah exactly exactly so that is another so, podcast yeah. for another time. <laughs> I need yeah. to do one on lipids for sure. Um, I wrote down a note just because it, something that I found fascinating, this is very early on and I don't know the disparity between it now, is there was a difference between survival um, or the outcomes between men and women. So men seem to be more severely affected with acute COVID Um and one of the, I guess we brought it up before. I think one of the, the thoughts around this was because we have higher expression of ACE2, but I would love to get your thoughts on why this might be the case. Yeah. I mean, what came out in our research uh, was there were, there were a number of things around how estrogen is processed mm -hmm. in the body. Um, so that's clearly something that, does differ between males and females. Um, estrogen is a good thing. Um, so estrogen has anti-inflammatory effects, for example. So that could be, um, you know, it could be a factor in what's the starting point in terms of inflammatory status between males and females. Maybe we've not looked at that specifically mm -hmm. but what we did look at was that women especially middle-aged women or women who are kind of 40s to 60s 40 to 65 um were more likely to experience long covid than men so that that was a fairly well is a fairly well accepted statistic um so there was a lot of questioning about why could this be the case um and some of the things that we looked at um 
we saw differences in genotypes that impact estrogen. Um, so for example, um, estrogen receptor genes, so how the body responds to estrogen. So receptor genes, it's like the, the radar that is looking out for whatever the chemical or hormone or substance is, um, and, it, and, and manages the response to that. Um, so there were differences in receptor genes that could mean that estrogen had it behaved differently or it created a, a different type of effect in the body. And women in their 40s tend to have more volatile estrogen levels anyway. Um, so it's a very unsteady phase for many women. Mm -hmm. And so there was a link between a particular estrogen receptor SNP, so a single letter change, a very small change in the DNA. And it was much more common in women who were experiencing long COVID. Um, and what that, that, the explanation for that could be that the, the regulation of estrogen was disrupted and it's, it, it became even more volatile in those women so peaking and, and troughing. And then there is a, a further connection uh, between how estrogen interacts with mast cells, which are all part of the immune system. So the mast cells are releasing the cytokines and it's all part of the fighting the, the, the invader. Um, high or excess estrogen, shall we say, can have a interaction with mast cells. So there are receptors on mast cell membranes and estrogen can trigger those mast cells to release the cytokines. And the person then would experience uh, symptoms like histamine symptoms. So like an allergic reaction. Yeah, and rushes, in some ways, hives, things like that. Yeah, exactly. And in some ways, you know, mast cell, it's like all these things are there for a reason and they're there um, and they might be helpful in certain scenarios and at certain levels. But if they become dysregulated, out of control and mast cells are oversensitive and less stable, then you can just get a... a, a overreactive oversensitive situation where those people are experiencing symptoms of histamine um like migraines mm -hmm. um like swelling like hives like rashes um allergy type things just all the time um and that is more common in in women in their 40s approaching menopause anyway because the volatility of estrogens so some women do experience that but that seems to be a very neat tie-in um, with long COVID and the kind of symptoms that people are experiencing. So estrogen tends to be more tightly regulated, better regulated in younger women. And then in the 40s, it, it, it becomes less well-regulated. And the regulation of estrogen is very much under the control of the hypothalamus and pituitary and there is a whole host of research about how covid interacts with that and destabilizes 
the HP axis Mm -hmm. and nervous system. Um, And I think that absolutely makes sense as something that ties into it. So um, the HP axis, it's like the master regulator, isn't it? It regulates hormones. It regulates our nervous system. So things like cortisol, Mm -hmm. adrenaline, as well as the sex steroid hormones. Um, And if that is under stress, it's always under some sort of stress, but we're pretty good. The body's pretty good at stabilizing and adjusting and adapting, Uh, but within limits, everyone's got limits. And for many people, COVID is another stressor, as would be any sort of infection. It's a stressor and it has effects on that regulating system so it's another thing adding to the stress load the Mm -hmm. allostatic load Um, and we talked earlier about people who were very very fit very active um, recreational athletes for example who run marathons and things like that who were really really shocked uh, to become really ill with COVID and long COVID is almost, you know, why? Why would that happen? You know, they're super fit. They run 60 miles a week or whatever. Mm-hmm. How could that possibly be? Um, but I think that fits into, they're kind of quite on the, or to what they're pushing their body. They're stressing their body Constantly. and stressing. Yeah, yeah. And that's a good thing as long as it doesn't go over the edge and something like a a really nasty viral infection is the thing that could tip you over the edge if you're closer to that edge to start with. Um, And you might be depleted of certain nutrients. You might be replenishing them, but there might be more opportunities for people who are exercising quite rigorously um, for, for the virus to 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 take advantage of yeah um you know while they're recovering from that that big run at the weekend or or whatever that makes a lot of sense and i think i mean i've read this before that long distance running is inversely correlated with longevity so the you know pushing the body i think to an extreme which i think a lot of athletes are is probably not a good thing for your immune system in general. Um, yeah. But, you know, we don't really know the limit here because there has been research done showing that if you stick to or just go above the guidelines, which I think is like 150 minutes of moderate exercise a week, um, but I'll list them below if I've got that wrong and if I haven't, <laughs> um, because th- that's associated with less severe outcomes from covid um, so that there's got to be a balance here. Don't go crazy, but definitely have some in your lifestyle. Yeah, exactly. And I think there's more and more, there's a kind of big theme that certainly I'm very conscious of now, which is that a little bit of something can be as good as a lot. And it can be better than a lot because you don't risk wearing yourself down and depleting your resources so much but you're getting the benefit of of the the stressor in a good stressor way Mm -hmm. so it's kind of helping the plasticity of various systems 
whether that's neuronal or whether it's um, your energy systems or whatever. So you're giving it enough of a push to, 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 to adapt and to learn to adapt and be plastic. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're, you're not actually wearing it down and wearing it out. And it's almost like an elastic band, isn't it? It's like, you want you don't you don't want to pull it so tight that it snaps. Yes. You, but you want the you know you you want the flexibility. Mm. Um, and there's a lot of work about around metabolic flexibility um, out there, which is a fascinating area. But I think that plays all into this as well. You know, we want metabolic flexibility, um, but that doesn't mean driving yourself harder and harder and harder and more and more and more isn't better. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we don't need to be, it's not a competition. It's not, we don't need to be macho about it. You know, a bit like it's very, very well understood now that we need sleep and it's, you know, back in the day, it was a kind of big thing to go, I don't I only need four hours sleep I can get away with four hours sleep and you know how hard these people work and how brilliant they are and now that paradigm has completely been turned on its head Mm -hmm. and we know how important sleep is um so yeah I think I think the stress aspect and where where are people in terms of the threshold Mm -hmm. is a really really big one you want to be you want to be exercising it but you don't want to be wearing it out and you don't want to be tipping tipping it over the top yeah absolutely I mean I've just naturally recently just because I felt like I was overdoing it reduced my exercise load and I feel much better for it and I think there's probably just a, a sign which I should have picked up on earlier I was just thought just eat more do you know what I mean? It's probably, I'm just like depleting myself of calories that I was just overdoing the exercise and you need to cut back occasionally. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Because overtraining yeah. is a thing, even in recreational athletes, right? Because if you're stressing yourself physically as well as mentally at work and all the rest of it, um, you yeah. are going to burn out at some point. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there are a lot of people who are close to burnout, um, you know, so... I think also just to almost carry on the theme, exercise is good and we know it's good and we know it helps the body um, create antioxidants, for example. So mm-hmm. it's almost like we're, we're creating oxidative stress. It's like if you think about um, weight training, you've got to kind of damage the muscle in order for it to repair and be, be stronger for it. Yeah. Um, and the body's designed to work in that way in lots of different kind of sub-scenarios of that. Um, so with things like when you exercise, you shear off certain, certain, certain things, and that is oxidative stress. Mm-hmm. Um, but as a compensation, there are other functions that create antioxidants naturally that synthesize them in order to to repair from that and recover from it and that's how it should work 
that if we do too much, then they, the repair part of the equation might not be able to keep up. And oxidative stress is something that can be there, whether it's physical stress or psychological or social stress as well. Mm-hmm. Because if you think that's the HPA, hypothalamus, pituitary, adrenals, we can think ourselves stressed. So something might happen. Uh, we open up an email and it's something that we don't like the sound of. And that can create an adrenaline physiological response in us where we might start to shake a bit or whatever. That certainly used to happen to me. It does it very occasionally now. Um, but, you know, actually us, our, our, our mind can create physiological changes in the body like more adrenaline like more cortisol and those chemicals have to be metabolized have to be processed and in the in the process of doing so they break down into other chemicals that can cause damage so if we're stressed psychologically Mm -hmm. um then we're creating a, a a, psych- a physiological effect that is adding to our stress load, our physical stress load as well. Um, and so, for example, we have a stress reaction to something psychological. We make adrenaline, we release adrenaline, that makes the heart pump faster, blood sugar is raised. But if we're not running anywhere, to use up that blood sugar the sugar is cursing around our system yeah and that's damaging and you know so uh, we know that even if people don't get covid a lot of people are really really stressed about the prospects and the fear around covid mm-hmm. right now yes 100%. And, you know, it was, a, it was an outcome that I don't think anyone really foresaw. It was like, because of lockdown, um, we were not exposed to just bacteria, bacteria or viruses that wouldn't really make us that sick or would, but weren't that deadly. So our immune system kind of calmed down. It wasn't in like training all the time to respond to things. And equally, we reduced our physical activity and then increased our worry. So it was like a triple threat. Right. So when we're actually just um, come back into the real world and things open up and things, people are getting these like the worst cold ever. Right. I think it was coined. And maybe not. Maybe that cold virus isn't any stronger than it was a couple of years ago, but people are reacting to it differently. Now, I don't know that for a fact, but that is what I have theorized. Yeah. 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 So it's in some ways more of a panic response. Yeah. So if the immune system you know, if it's just working in its regular way, it should be able to deal with it. It's used to this. But when something comes along that it's not used to, like if you could just compare it to fear, can't you? Mm -hmm. It's a more novel situation. It's more likely to to react in a wrong sort of way. So either not enough or too much um, or not enough in the first place. And then once it once it takes hold too much um so we did see from a genetic perspective that 
some of the genes involved in oxidative stress. Mm-hmm. Um, so things like adrenaline. So if you think about adrenaline as being the fight or flight and the fear and the over responder, if it's there for too long. Um, so genes involved in breaking down adrenaline, some of them were actually quicker. So the variances that made those genes faster at breaking down adrenaline were more prevalent. And you kind of think, well, why? Why would that be? Um, But actually it's the product of the adrenaline that is damaging Mm -hmm. as well. So, and if you're still making more adrenaline, so there's just more of all these chemicals um, that are only meant to be there for a short time to deal with the acute stressor rather than the long-term. And so the body's just got more and more and more to deal with um, just because of the number of different stressors that people are experiencing. That makes perfect sense. And yeah, you're tying everything up extremely well. So we've covered... We've covered a lot. <laughs> so we've covered research, we've covered vitamin D quite intensively, we've covered hormones and how that affects um, outcomes from, from COVID-19, but we've also covered stress as well. Something that we didn't, I guess, cover entirely is why men seem to experience more acute COVID than women. They've not answered that yet. Have they? That's I don't know of any kind of accepted, widely accepted theory of that. Yeah, I don't, I don't either. I'm, I'd be interested if, um, I mean, this is just me thinking out loud now, um, but I'd be interested to see if it was like men are more or have a propensity to be more obese or have higher blood pressure or you know have type two diabetes. Some of the common things that we know increase the risk of COVID-19. I did read yeah. in a paper that they do have more ACE2 expression or potentially more ACE2 expression, but I would need to confirm that. And ACE2 is the main way um, the virus gets into the cells and into the body. So, yeah. Yeah. Further reading I mean, it, is needed. <laughs> yeah. I mean, with, with all people, it's older people as well, isn't it? Um, which isn't surprising because our biology gets less efficient as we age um and i guess back to the hormones steroid hormones deplete or become lower with age in males and females Mm -hmm. and so these hormones that are protective and i know hormones have kind of got bad rap because it's like oh there is estrogen related cancer and testosterone related cancer and etc cetera, etc cetera. but actually they are there for lots of reasons and mm-hmm. not just reproductive reasons um so they're protective in in other ways um and for example testosterone is an hp axis karma so it's a regulator of the HP axis, it actually feeds back to the hypothalamus and slows down the cortisol kind of adrenaline picture, Mm -hmm. which is really, really interesting. I think that, so when there's less of that, does that mean it's, it's easier for that system to become hyper activated? Mm 
um, for example, and then all the knock-on effects of that, which are, you know, things like sugar, heart rate, uh, blood pressure, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I think when we think about aging science um, and, and COVID, then that's also an interesting aspect. It's like metabolic reserve is another thing, metabolic flexibility. Yeah, I was going to say um, metabolic flexibility. You're absolutely right, yeah. So, and the fact that women live longer than men. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, the, in a very high level way, the, it could make sense that the things that help women to live longer also are protective um, in, in, a, in a viral scenario too. Um, yeah i mean there's so many different factors as well that you mentioned before because i think women have a tendency to take better care of themselves than men do as well um which is probably up there with one of the reasons why women have a a longer lifespan yeah well that's interesting isn't it because it's men's health month it might not be when this podcast goes out but that is it that's kind of one of the themes that we're working on uh here at the moment in life code we're looking at men's health and what is different about men's health to women's health Mm -hmm. and then of course there are the sociological factors like men don't go to the gp um you know they're reluctant to go whereas women are probably a bit more certainly some of the older women i know they're down at their gp almost every week um but but men are more reticent about that they'll let things go on for longer before they um look for support or help and then there's also the things around emotional health and expression of emotions and sharing of emotions and mental health which is absolutely massive Mm um you know and there are definitely genotypes and traits associated with genotypes that affect behavior in that way. Um, So the ability to mount a stress response or an emotional response, there are genes very closely connected to that. That means some people just naturally find it more difficult to express themselves and to to kind of get it out. Um, They might bottle up emotions and problems much more um then they also in the same genes as the bottling up are related to things like alcohol use uh, or misuse you know so it's kind of like in order to share and express myself and talk about this I need to have a drink I couldn't possibly tell anyone about it you know otherwise yeah um and to to kind of oil the all the wheels so to speak so um, that's the really, really fascinating part of the picture, I think, in, in men's health, particularly. You know, obviously, all men are not the same, all women are not the same. So what makes some men more vulnerable to that sort of situation where they bottle things up and they can't talk about it and they can't share and tell anyone or get a resolution or seek help? Um, so, and if you know that, and it was a way of recognizing it about yourself or reflecting, you know, oh, okay, now, now I've seen this, actually maybe that is me. And maybe that's 
a problem and I hadn't really thought of it being a problem but now I've had time to reflect on it and I've been I've been kind of stimulated and prompted to reflect on it oh I can do these things about it Mm. that don't involve alcohol but there are ways of supporting it nutritionally or from other lifestyle perspectives to kind of help get over that that kind of hurdle that barrier that would be massively fascinating so I think everyone should watch this space and see what you come out with for sure um, we're coming up on time. There's just one more thing I wanted to touch upon, um, which I think we, we covered some of it before, and that's like ethnic minorities, like BAME groups, for lack of a better term, seem to be at a higher risk of COVID-19 than Caucasian individuals, for example. Now, this is a massively complex issue because you have socioeconomic, racial things here going yeah. on. But also low vitamin D status to go back a full circle seems to be potentially an underlying factor here because we know vitamin D status is lower in these groups um, purely because they need more exposure to the sun to create enough vitamin D. And because where we live in the UK, that doesn't always happen. And also because of the occupation of most people around the world is inside, out of the sun. They're just not getting the vitamin D they need to have adequate status. That's my take. I don't know yeah. what's yours <laughs> nah absolutely that that is likely to be a factor mm-hmm. I agree it, it is likely to be a factor and you know how how many of that group of people are are aware as well in mm-hmm. terms of um education and availability i think the socioeconomic stuff is really massive yes um, i entirely agree so with you. yeah really massive any and um, you know back to stress again with that as well people who don't have as much control over their own lives you know working multiple jobs um maybe not being able to get outside it's not a matter of choice even but mm. they just don't because they've got two three jobs to hold down or whatever it happens to be but also feeling disempowered uh, in general yeah. and that having a big effect on on your kind of stress levels and health levels as well um there are definitely genetics involved in things like diabetes risk mm-hmm. as well and we know about certain aspects of that so if people are already metabolically worse off, then they're more at risk to start with. Yeah. Um, so I think there's a there's a there's a, a very significant aspect of what is your starting point here, what are your risk factors anyway, and that you know that's gonna that's gonna create a bigger uh, risk in terms of if you are exposed what is the what's the prognosis and what is the the kind of sequence of events that is more likely there uh, I mean one of the potential good outcomes of all of this is better health awareness mm-hmm. um, amongst everyone but hopefully a leveling up as well in terms of groups that have been worse affected and how that is addressed yeah and um, understanding why 
like the underlying yeah. reasons why that's the case um yeah because like you said before it's a it's me speculating that vitamin d is primary cause but you are 100 percent right socioeconomic factors are a huge you know if people can't necessarily afford to eat well or maybe aren't educated to know what a healthy diet is then they're not going to and therefore maybe a predisposition for type 2 diabetes or obesity or things like that and we know that's a risk factor for severity of COVID-19 so yeah, yeah couldn't agree yeah. with you more on all of that yeah yeah I think there's also a, a thing um around we're all now a melting pot of genetics. So because people move and live in different countries and are often thousands of miles from their kind of heritage in terms of background and ancestors and things. So a genetic profile that might have fit very well with a certain environment, once that person is moved into a a very different environment um, their genes haven't had the time to evolve mm -hmm. and change and adapt so they've got the same genes but what may have been advantageous um in 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 one country with its cultures as well as its geography and its weather and all those things may be actually not so helpful in a Western environment with loads of junk food and, and all that stress and, and things as well. So I think that's a really big consideration uh, that our, our genes don't necessarily fit the environment that we find ourselves in. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so we might have been born in a country that is very different from three generations ago. Um, that's not enough time for genetic variation to really adapt to very different circumstances. Um, and even if we are in the same place, even within the same country, our environment's changed very quickly as well, hasn't it? Certainly in terms of food. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> yeah, so, I entirely agree and with the, Yeah. And to your point about vitamin D and the amount of time that we spend exposed to natural light. Yes, exactly. You know, I just bought one of these vitamin L lights from no affiliation with the company, but Lumi. Um, but yeah. it's kind of just to, to get exposure to white light. But it's really bright. Like I struggled to sit next to it um, for, <laughs> for the desired amount of time. But yeah, I think in these winter months, like I don't, I don't think I suffer from SAD, seasonal affective disorder. But I also think I'm, my mood is probably less, is lower during these winter months. So I'm trying to bypass that keeping my vitamin d levels up just in case that's a factor but also trying to just get exposure even if it is from an artificial source of white light um to see if that'll help as well and i don't think you can overdo it on on the loomy light can you you're not going to get burnt from it so you know and i think this is a thing as well like some people i've heard people go oh you don't want to take too much vitamin d which is true there is an upper limit, but that upper limit is quite high and it's 
you'd have to try quite hard, I think, to overshoot in mm. terms of your actual vitamin D status. Um, so, yes, it is possible, but um, the vast majority of people are on the low side rather than the high side. Yeah. I agree with that too. And the absorption becomes less the the higher you push it. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And that's the body's natural way, isn't it? Of regulating it. And I think also if you, if you're using a light to, to get that, then that's a even better way because your, your body's able to regulate that from the outset. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's, that's the danger. You can't overdose with a, a light yeah. in the same way that you could overdo it with a supplement. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, exactly. And it, the light's beneficial because of like the photoreceptors and all the rest of it and stimulating. I feel more awake when I'm, when I'm around it. It's just, I have to force myself to do it. I need to find a better way of exposing myself to the light, but I'll get there. That's my own issue. Um, and circadian rhythm actually is a really big one. So great from that perspective, if you can expose yourself to the light in the morning, mm-hmm. soon after you wake up, that is the best kind of way of regulating circadian rhythm. Um, and that's another huge topic, but a massively important one for health. And I think, you know, the, the multiple benefits of that. I'm tempted to get one myself now. <laughs> <laughs> There's quite a few out there, but yeah, for sure. I'd, I'd recommend it. Um, I'm trying to think whether I just wear sunglasses when I'm close to it, but I might ruin some of the benefits. <laughs> okay. Well, that is all that we have time for today. Emma, this has been an absolute joy as always. Um, thank you so much for coming on the show. I think we discussed a hell of a lot. I will link to your paper that's coming out when it's out. Uh, in the show notes as well as all the links that we spoke about today and the resources great lovely to speak to you as usual and enjoy your light and your vitamin d boost (laughs) thanks so much and i hope that we can do this again soon Thank you for listening to the Functional Health Podcast. You can find links to everything that we talked about today in the show notes. If you have a second, please consider leaving a five-star rating on iTunes. It really does make a huge difference and helps get this valuable information out and reach more people. Don't forget to subscribe so you can stay up to date and know whenever I release a new episode. You can connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, or our website, and all questions are welcome. As always, thanks to Joss Aurelia for all the editing and thank you all for your support.